Welcome to Out of the Blank. Welcome to another episode of Out of the Blank Podcast. Kieran, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Would you like to introduce yourself to everyone out there listening? Okay, my name is Kieran Connolly, and I wrote a book in 2013, published in 2014, called Dark History of Hollywood. Um, so I've written some popular histories, and I've worked in editorial, in publishing in London, and also as a journalist in London. And years before that, I also went to film school, so cinema has always been an interest of mine, and there's some family background in cinema in, in the UK, in the family, so uh, I sort of grew up, grew up a little bit around film and TV in the UK. Um, and what else? Next question. Well, before we get into the dark side of Hollywood, like what, what fascinates you about film? I think I started learning like not only the relationship between film and politics is actually pretty tight in there, but just the various aspects of like what you start to notice if you actually start like filming your own stuff, like you start noticing camera angles differently, you notice good script puncture, you notice um, obviously moments that probably could be cut out of some things as well too. I'm, pretty, I'm very critical on like everything that I make. So like whenever I see something, I'm like, oh, this could be faster. Or this could be said better but then you're watching a film and like it all kind of falls together yeah i think in, in, a, in a great film you you know you you stop thinking too critically because you're just so, so swept up in it and i think I've always, i always enjoyed as a kid just the you know just wonderful you know visual storytelling if it was like an exciting adventure film or a wonderful comedy i enjoyed that and i i suppose i was fueled a little bit because my father worked a bit in the industry as a screenwriter and a tv writer and so he could kind of inform me a bit about it. I, just, I was just very excited by the end product and then how it came to be made. So over the years, I've interviewed a few people, such as John Goldstone, who produced the Monty Python films, and David Arnold, who's a composer who worked on many, many of the more recent Bond films, and uh, Christopher Hampton, who wrote uh, Dangerous Liaisons and many other movies, and interviewing them about their craft and how it came and how, and, you, know, how you get those moments on screen. Um, so I was always interested in filmmaking and obviously, you know, if you're, you know, English speaking and interested in filmmaking, you're, you're thinking mainly about Hollywood filmmaking and, and the Hollywood industry. And I think there's a great romance in, in the history of Hollywood, in people leaving the East coast, you know, a hundred years ago or 105 years ago, moving to sunny Southern California and starting a new world there when, you know, it was at the time kind of where they would say people from the West, from the Midwest went to retire and there wasn't that much going on and there was sort of orange groves and things. And then because it's got wonderful light, because it's not um, unionized, because um, it's a bit cheaper there and it's kind of a long way from the East Coast and maybe some other reasons. You know this this new industry takes 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 root in in you know kind of barns you know the warehouses barns um in uh, in southern california uh so that always interested me and in, in writing the book obviously i thought learn more about it um 
I wasn't always that focused on the sort of politics of, between the relationship between politics and Hollywood, but obviously that comes into it as does the mobster, as does many elements. When it comes into, I guess, your first impressions before you started writing your book, like going into the mindset of like what you're going to find out about Hollywood. I mean, I wouldn't have even known anything unless I started learning about the 60s and 70s and kind of J. Edgar Hoover's invasion into Hollywood. And I was I was pretty taken away by it. Um, I started to like dive into the subject of propaganda in films. And I kind of started noticing it now, like when I watch a film, like, wait a minute, Lone Survivor was like, sign up at your local recruitment station. Like if you're, you know, a young guy watching that, I mean, for me afterwards, I wanted to go right to a local recruitment station, but like, that's what I want to do. I want to be badass like that. And then you kind of start noticing like even Jurassic Park, I think it was at the ending, they had, um, this DOD, I guess, funded that movie a little bit of money, but at the ending, they say, thank God for the Marines. And that was just added in the script. And it doesn't seem like much. It's little small scale stuff, but it's like, I mean, it's like good advertising though. You really don't know about it until like you start noticing, I guess, the hints for it. And then you can pick it up really in any film where now I'm just like analyzing all of my childhood stuff. Like what was brainwashing me from when I was a kid? But to me, that's interesting. And I think you start noticing the relationship gets a little deeper. It's not just this sunny side picture of, um, you know, someone wanting to start their dreams in Hollywood and be on the big screen, which is like, I mean, that's a common thing for the youth, I think, is trying to go out to Hollywood. And you always hear your parents say, like, get a job or, you know, conform into the industry. And it's like, I'm never going to do that, man. That's also fascinating. I mean, the whole route of fame and what it does to an actor as well, too. I think there's some notable celebrities that had some pretty, uh, very public um, experiences with, I guess, the dealings of fame. Um, but when it comes to your first impressions and also what you started to learn, could you take me through some of that? I'm just picking up on, on some of the things you said there. I mean, there's quite a lot in the book about certain celebrities and lives that have, have unraveled in, in Hollywood from you know, the 20s to, to the present day. Um, and, you know, I think what Hollywood does is that, you know, it amplifies whatever weaknesses you, you already have. If you become successful, so you know if, if whatever kind of, yeah, so whatever kind of frailties might be there, you're then very famous and and celebrated, and people are throwing money at you. So it's uh, not maybe that surprising that, that things can then very unravel very poorly in in terms of yeah you know, addictions, excesses in different ways. Um, what was the other question? I was asking about your first impressions into Hollywood. And uh, obviously, it's hard, hard to say my, my first impressions. The book came about because the publisher I was working for at the time, I worked in-house for a publisher called Amber Books in London, and they had done some popular histories on, say, the, the papacy, the Catholic Church, um, the Tudors, and they wanted to do one on Hollywood. And I said, well, can I, I put my hand up and said, actually, well, this is kind of my topic, if, if you'll let me write it for you, because I've always been interested and, you know, learned more in the process of writing the book. And so it's quite hard to say what my first impression was because it's a you know sort of lifelong knowledge that's sort of grown. Um, and what was the next question? Well, did you know about any of the dark stuff that was going on in Hollywood? Uh, I, I learned more in writing the book. So, so something that you've mentioned before about so the mob in Hollywood. You know, I, the, the Frank Sinatra stories I'd, I'd heard about. So, you know, those stories or not. Do you want me to tell those stories? So if you want to tell a couple, I'm like, I've seen only the pictures. I'm still like, I mean, I love Frank Sinatra. I've listened to his music. I'm, I, have a, I have an old soul, I would say, when it comes to classical music. But um, I don't know anything besides maybe I think a story about a son being kidnapped at one point or his alleged son. I don't know. That, that's, that's, a, that's a true story, that one. But um, 
before that. So Sinatra's career was in the, on the wane um, as a singer um, in the 19, must be by, by the early 50s. And the story goes, and it is a you know, Hollywood law, L-O-R-E, that his connections with the mob, um, which was sort of known about in the sense that you might say that if you grew up as a nightclub singer, you know, in New York in his age, you're going to have to sort of know the mobsters, whether, whether how closely you were connected to them, we don't know, but you're going to have to sort of know them because they were part of that world. And they ran some of the clubs. Um, and maybe Sinatra never kind of, uh, you know, chose to distance himself much from that connection. And I think maybe he enjoyed slightly the connection, knowing the mob made, made you kind of, you know, a bit rough, a bit cool, a bit dangerous, you know. And the mobsters, on the other hand, maybe enjoyed the fact, hey, we know this, you know, this popular singer, they get some glamour and he gets some edge. And um, the, his singing career was on the wane. And the story goes that um, he used his mob connections. Um, he used his mob connections to get the part in the film From Here to Eternity with Montgomery Clift in, I think that's the early 50s now. Um, and so when you see The Godfather and, and you've, there's a sequence of um, the Robert Duval character going to the head of the studio and saying, you know, and the head of the studio showing him this lovely horse and they're pushing to get, is it, um, I've forgotten the name, the cat, the act, the cat, the cat, I've forgotten the character's name, but there's a, there's a sort of Latino um, popular singer, kind of Sinatra kind of character in The Godfather, trying to get into Hollywood. And the mobs are, the mobs are acting for him. They try and persuade the head of the studio to give the, uh, the, the, the singer a role, a role. The head of the studio says no. And the next sequence is the head of the studio waking up and that lovely horse's head yeah. in his bed. Yeah. So that's, that's the sort of Hollywood law that that was loosely based on an incident in Sinatra's life. He used his mob connections possibly in that way, or they used that way to um, uh, get his career in Hollywood going. And then he, in, he then did, um, so he did From Here to Eternity. I think he was nom nominated for an Oscar for the role. He got his new record deal, I think with Capitol, he began recording some of his greatest songs with the sort of the Songs of Swing Lovers albums, working with Nelson Riddle. So it, it all sort of picked up again from there for the next you know, 10, 15 years. Well, it's a smart business strategy if you think about it. I mean, if you're a musician, you're looking for some extra, I would say, I wouldn't say fame, but some extra, I guess, edge to you. Um, hanging out with mob. I mean, if the mob had connections into Hollywood already, I mean, it's already kind of like a little bit of a deal. I think like I probably know more about the FBI's involvement in there. To me, that's just interesting. Like how deep did the mob connections go with Hollywood? Because I mean, besides individual actors, I mean, did they have an influence as much as maybe the press office or the FBI or other forms of government? Uh, I think what I, I mean, what I do know is 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 the way that the mobs in, infiltrated the studios, not in the sort of press level, but in terms of the unions. So, you know, um, you know, so prohibition ends in late twenties, yes, and you then got mobs thinking, well, what, where's our kind of, you know, what's a, another lucrative avenue, re revenue stream for us? So, some move from Chicago west 
and think, okay, well, Hollywood's a, a emerging industry. What can we do there? And having sort of previously sort of muscled in on, on, on businesses in, in Chicago, they then muscle in on, on the unions in, in Hollywood, so the, the technicians' unions. And what they were doing was, um, so George Brown and Willie Byoff were, got themselves to run the technicians' unions, and then they were pushing for, you know, very small advance, advancements in, in, say, pay for the uh, union members. And in return, they were taking quite major kickbacks from the studios. So it's not like a good thing, like trying to get people, I guess, more money for the work that they do. It's kind of like just trying to get a little extra for themselves as well. Yeah, they were, they were getting more for themselves and, and minimal, minimal stuff for the, for, for, the, for the members of their unions. And this went on like from the late 30s to the early, early mid 40s. And then um, it was finally sort of found out. And, you know, Willie Byoff went into the witness protection program for, for, for finally having kind of fessed up. And um, Joseph Schenk, who was chairman of the 20th century Fox, went to prison for a while. I think he, I think he got sort of five years, but he only sort of served one year. Then he got a presidential pardon from Truman. Um, so that that I hadn't known that, that it had been that sort of corrupt that that the you know that the uh, heads of the studios were actually paying off the mob to to suppress the union. I don't know much about the if it if it at all happened at a sort of press office level or or FBI things. There, the FBI definitely did invade the screen, um, mostly looking for communists, but there was a production code office that would also catch things as well, too. Certain guidelines that Hollywood had to go by. But um, would, you say that's a, would you say that's an FBI thing or would you just say that's the Hayes office production code? I would say definitely the FBI, if you look at what they did when it came to the FBI coming on screen, the FBI could shoot as much as they want. The bad guys could shoot, but they had to miss. That's why whenever you watch a movie and the FBI does come on screen, especially in older movies, you think, oh, the badasses are here. Um, because that was a rule. Like you can't have an FBI agent get hit by bullets. There was a bunch of stuff. And you start noticing that through the transforming, I guess, in Hollywood. Like even now, I think like lethal weapon, I wouldn't say, would it be lethal weapon or like die hard? You have a crooked cop, a guy who was like, seems beaten and broken. He's a bit of a vigilante, but he still has authority that he calls to. And that is the police. I think now, I think maybe cops are shown in a little bit like they somehow, they have some blemishes, obviously. Um, but back in the day, there was none of that. I think even Hoover was checking out profiles on certain actors, too, ones that were good family men, um, didn't have any scandals going about them, didn't have any drugs, alcohol, anything of that sort. That's a smart strategy, too. But it just it, make, it brings up the complexity. Imagine you're a young actor coming to Hollywood. You might have some. I don't know, maybe say, say you're young, you have, might have some like liberal views or something like that, or you, you know, you think about other countries, you might have a voice or you might be an activist in that sense. You also got to think about like, oh crap, if I say something that could be taken as like communism, you know, the guys could, FBI, J. Edgar Hoover could just send a memo to one of the Hollywood directors, Warner Brothers, any of these giant corporations, and then I wouldn't get picked up for a film, you get blacklisted by Hollywood. And then you just kind of notice the multiple things that start happening. You're just like, oh my God, imagine being 17 years old. Like I'm going to, I'm going to change the world. I'm going to be loved by millions. And then you go for your first audition and someone makes you want to do something you don't want to do, or, uh, you know, they don't like how you look. I don't know. Well, certainly there's that whole area that's sort of casting couch thing, but then certainly the, obviously the blacklist did happen and, and, and careers were ruined and people, I remember, I remember thinking of this sort of irony of, you know, the 1930s, a lot, of, a lot of, you know, either either Jewish people or people who who, you know, weren't sympathetic to the way 
you know, governments were going in, in Europe, you know, fled fascism, you know, the, the Beatle Wilds of, of that world, go to, go to Hollywood, uh, have new careers there, come the 50s, uh, late 40s, early 50s, you've got the blacklist com coming in, and actually the people are then leaving Hollywood, some of them, uh, because, you know, they can't work under, under or they've come under suspicion because they've held, you know, slightly left-leaning political views and uh, have, have begun new careers again in the UK, in France a bit. The Jules Dassin made refugee refugee work to France. Um, some people came to the UK. Uh, others, you know, failed to work in Hollywood at all or had to work under, with France or had to work just on lesser material. So that kind of one moving, moving west in the 1930s, 10, 15 years later, moving back across the Atlantic because of the... Uh, the uh, McCarthy and the, the Hollywood blacklist. I think when it comes to the pressures that really kind of started to, I guess I would say the release of pressure. When we look at like the censorship on the amount of films that were happening from like the 20s, the 30s, and then so on. I think when you start getting into when they started putting actual sex on screen, is not only when you really got to see what I would call the dark side. I think when I focus on a lot of the dark side, it doesn't even have to go to like government corruption stuff. It's mostly the mindset of what these actors have to be going through. I mean, you got to think, I mean, it's kind of like doing this, but it's not. There's going to be millions of people that see a film and they're sometimes closer to your face than anybody should normally be closer to your face. And they develop this connection with this person. I think you could probably name a whole bunch of actors where you know them as their character than you do their actual name. And people think they like have this realistic connection. I mean, we, we know about like crazy stories like stories with John Lennon and things of that sort. But that's a it's that fandom aspect, which to me is fascinating, because when you start seeing like sex go on screen, you start seeing a whole different avenue where you see like you have the best dancer, which is Marilyn Monroe. I mean, a lot of people visioned her as a sex symbol, even today, still a sex symbol. But the amount of torture that that woman went through, I mean, I couldn't even imagine. It's like when I look at like Robin Williams or something, he's a, a crazy good comedian and a great, like best movie star, in my opinion. But then like, I mean, what happened to him? And you just kind of realize like, oh, like all these jokes that he was cracking, all these laughs that I was creating, I was like, something happened to him. Though, whether that was unapplied pressure or that was something that was going on in his life. And like, we just didn't pay attention to that. And it's like, that's why I think there's like a giant push for mental health here too. But I mean, the whole, the whole dark side of it, I mean, look at the actor's perspective, look at every, what everybody has. I mean, the directors too, the influence on how to make a good film and people being mad if like the sequel doesn't pan out as good as the original. Oh, it's it's immense, you know. It's immense, you know, fame and wealth, but also immense pressure, and and that that I mean must be hugely unsettling uh, for for particularly the people in front of the camera. That you know, all of a sudden, the world thinks they they know you and they don't know you. Um, with Monroe, I think you know, I think she was troubled throughout her whole life, and obviously, as I was saying at the beginning, you know, fame is just, is only actually going to amplify amplify that. You know the. Um, I think I read that she probably sort of heard voices throughout her life. She had a very sort of troubled upbringing, um, and in fact was sort of married off when she was sixteen. This is the irony of the woman who becomes that, in a sense, the world's most desired person. And actually, at sixteen, she was sort of married off because uh, no one quite knew what to do with her, and he would sort of protect her, but not, but you know, sort of like 
not because he loves her, not because he desires her hugely, but they, they, he was sort of protective for her. That was her first marriage of, of three. Um, I remember George Axelrod, who uh, wrote the play, The Seven Year Rich, and co-wrote the screenplay, The Seven Year Rich, which she's, which she's in, and he sort of said, if you knew her for two minutes, there was nothing sexually attractive about her. You know, that was for him, you know, there was nothing. It was so sort of, you know, if she was so, I mean, obviously we all, we all feel differently about different people, but she was, you know, so troubled or that, that actually what you see on the screen is, is the sexy performance, but that's not what you've got in reality, unsurprisingly. Were you ever surprised? I mean, do you find that fascinating that sometimes the person that's on screen isn't necessarily the person off screen? Like there's a whole bunch of videos you can watch on YouTube of like Tom Cruise yelling at like the guy who works in the prop department set up supposed to set up the catering table or whatever it is. And it's a, it's a very popular video, but I just go, I mean, what do you expect? I mean, a lot of these actors, like, especially someone like Tom Cruise, which is, you know, we, we can leave the Scientology thing out of it, but when it comes into his aggression on things, I'm like, he also goes and does a lot of his own stunts. I think he broke his foot in a mission impossible. So when someone doesn't have, you know, their one job is setting up a cart table, they, he gets really, really pissed. I'm like, I mean, it makes a lot of sense. I mean, the over amounting pressure on actors to either take a film or, I mean, Nick Cage is still my favorite, but people are like, he should stop doing movies. I like it. I find it hilarious. Um, but I mean, that's, he's what is that pressure from Hollywood? Brennan Frazier is another good example. Uh, I mean, I think with Chris, I've not seen that clip about the, Cruz shouting at the uh, catering person. Is it was it was that a, was that one of the COVID ones where the guy wasn't wearing a mask or not? No, there was another one like that, but this was actually a couple of years before. There was a person that didn't have all their stuff set up, I guess the catering table, and he just like lost it. I think there's one with Christian Bale too, but I don't know. Yeah, to me, it's Christian like Christian Bale one on Terminator. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, you know, I, you know, everyone's got. Uh, you know, we all have our moments in the in the office. You know, and there's everyone's going to have that moment in the office. And I suppose the thing is, is that person repeatedly like that, or is just you know, every once in a while there's going to be a, a tricky moment. Um, so I don't think there are that many stories about I don't know about Cruz. Um, yeah, but after a while, you do begin to sort of hear some stories. I can't think of any right now, of course, of people who are you know are difficult to work with. But I think with Cruz, it's very much you know, increasingly he does it all his own stunts and these both Top Gun Maverick, which I've not seen yet, and the recent Mission Impossible films are kind of becoming ever more you know, spectacular with him doing even more spectacular things. Do you ever think there was a gold age of film? Like, would you consider today like a, not 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 on the basis of film, like the actual movie thing, but just like, I guess the, the business in general. Like I'm surprised even with Marilyn Monroe, when you look at her, it's kind of like, you wish there was guardrails set up at least. I mean, Elvis is a, the, probably my only example on this is, but he was like the first person to ever experience like real, like fame first, where he was like, I mean, like a giant monopolizing figure, but he also stepped in every single pothole where anybody following could be like, don't do what they don't do what he did. That's and it's nice, like, that's a still, nice way of putting it about Elvis. Yeah. He, I mean, I think the thing that the uh, John Lennon said about Elvis was that, you know, for us, the Beatles, it was it was tough, but there were four of us. God help poor Elvis, was, he was there on his own, you know, to just to deal with the kind of the onslaught of, 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 of fame or people wanting something from you, either with good intentions or with poor intentions, and the, the endless attention, yeah. And uh, Elvis's career is such a sort of tragedy, um, yeah. Well, with the golden age of film, do you think it was better? So the golden age of film, I mean, 
I suppose people talk usually talk about the sort of studio system, so in the sort of 1930s and the 1940s. Um, and I suppose the filmmaker I like most would, would, would be Billy Wilder, who's you know best known for something like a hot, the apartment, double indemnity, um, Sons of Boulevard. And so his his best films were in the 1940s and 1950s. And I think going back to something you mentioned earlier on was that, you know, with the production code and the sort of sex on screen and censorship, one of the, you know, there were so many things you couldn't say or do on screen and you had to run your, your scripts through past the production code, which had been set up by the industry. Um, the upside of it was that you had to be more ingenious in, in making your point because you couldn't be explicit about it. And so that could, could with the right kind of film, lead to very sort of, um, you know, that sort of elegant storytelling um, and you, know, you have to work a bit harder. And it's the same, it's sometimes the same way with like, you know, all of a sudden they say, you've got less budget for the film. What are you going to do? And you're going, okay, I've got to think more creatively and you can't come up with a better solution, you know? And you think actually that was better than the, better than the first idea anyway. Do you think that there ever should be restrictions on film? Like if you could go back to the beginning before there was a whole censorship thing, do you think there should be restrictions on, I always go like, I mean, it creativity, you know, I think if it's good and it's done right, people are going to like it. Um, I've seen stuff where I could never think of in a million years, like subtle ways of hinting at something or subtle ways of doing something at whether it's a director's perspective or an actor's perspective, which is just like, I would have never thought of that. And then I get it. Like, I'm like, Shyamalan, Jesus, man. Every time I watch one of his films, I'm losing my mind. Cause like at the ending, I was like, I did not expect that, but it's, you know, he created a whole career off of like these twist endings and these kind of things you can keep rewatching and seeing something over again. But then you have other films that like push the boundaries like Cohen brothers. Um, I'm a big fan. If you ever see Ballad of Buster Scruggs, I mean, I've seen that. Yeah. Yeah. That yeah. movie is like eight different movies in one, but yeah, they're like really dark, but they're like really like, I, there's some, I couldn't even explain it to you where to me, it's like, every time I watch it, it's just something where it's just like, they pulled it off in like the best possible way. Like, I mean, everything you keep guessing this is going to happen, which is what we do in films. And then it doesn't end up that way. Yeah. I think the Cohen's are very good at sort of a, a wrong footing the, the audience and, and sort of playing with, uh, with storytelling itself. I mean, I think there's a, there's a twist in the way that the story in um, Inside Lewin Davis is told, uh, which I enjoyed. I say a film from, mm, maybe it's 10 years ago now, but about, about, the, about the Greenwich Village musician. And uh, I don't want to give it away, but there's a, there's a sort of twist in the way the story is told. Whether it makes the story any different or not, I don't know, but there's a sort of twist in the telling of it. Do you prefer like a actual like real storytelling or do you prefer just like a good story? Like it doesn't have to be all based on a, like an actual event. Like I find myself now that I guess I'm, I wouldn't say I'm older, but I'm in my twenties and I like watching documentaries a lot more than I used to. I used to think documentaries were terribly boring. Um, but even like, I just want to watch something where there's like at least a little bit of historical stuff in it, whether it's like three mile Island or something about like a real event that did happen. Um, Netflix is great for that right now, but then I watched avatar too. It's like a two hour and 30 minute movie. And you're like, Oh my God, halfway through, you're like, is it almost over? But it is really good. And it was something I waited 10 years basically for that movie to come out again. And I mean, I got it and I was happy with it, but there is that. I mean, so I do like the, like the fantasy stuff and I do like the real documentary stuff, but do you prefer real actual storytelling based on a true event that might be added with some fantasy a little bit in there, but it is based in a real 
current story or do you prefer something that's more made up like star wars or something that's way out there um i probably prefer things that are purely fictitious um i mean, I mean having said that you know things that are based on on on, on fact that the danger can be that you, you that you're tied too much to trying to sort of tell a factual story in a sort of in a sort of dramatic setting and then it can, can become sort of neither nor but um, there's that recent film about uh, which I haven't seen yet called She Said about the bringing down Harvey Weinstein and the 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 journalists there, and you know you wonder will it become too um, too sort of worthy a story to tell as a as a drama, and again I've not seen it so maybe it was wonderful, um, and not that effective as a drama i quite though that having said all that i quite like stories where you've got a sort of historical backdrop when you're telling a, a fictitious story against say you know a war or something like that and i find i find that can be quite quite good if you're you know or in a sense like titanic you know there's a there's a fact you know the, the back the, we all know the the factual elements of the story within that they create um you know a fictitious story of jack and rose and that's what we invested in in terms of you know how will they survive or will they survive so i quite like the sort of the fictitious foreground the, the factual background uh, i think when it's a sort of factual foreground it can be quite difficult to tell it well which sort of satisfies you both as a piece of factual history and also a piece of drama you're always going to have critics um it's like the one thing that kind of sucks is that obviously the movie every movie is not made for every single person out there there's an individual but titanic i don't know anybody that hasn't cried um during that movie i've cried during that movie um it's great uh i like how they do spin a little bit of a fake story inside of the titanic but still manages to keep the gravity of the actual historical event as well so i mean when the ship's going down you just see their hear the crew just playing their just playing their music while the ship's going down women and children first i mean i don't know how many people would actually be following that rule i would like to think in my mind there'd be a couple of people like no no, no i'm not doing that we're i'm getting on the boat first you know but that's i mean that's like with every movie that comes to like some impending disaster as well so i think it's what makes armageddon um i don't know if you've ever seen that movie where they're trying to see armageddon so i mean there's there's a lot of movies out there that have like this impending doom that's going to happen have you ever seen i'm legend Yes, I've seen that. That's a fantastic movie too. Like I, I, the drama stuff, I actually start to have a little bit more respect for. I used to just be like, want to see action movies and comedies and things of that sort. But I also liked like a story that can really kind of pull you out of the fact that you might be in a theater or you might be in your house and really kind of put you in the place of like, you're actually in dived into the, I have ADHD. So that's not an easy task to do. One thing I, I did want to bring up was, um, you were talking again about the kind of mob and Hollywood and tell me all the Godfather movies are a lie. Do it. Go ahead and tell yeah. me. <laughs> uh, I've not seen Godfather part three, but um, <laughs> no, I was thinking about in the night in the, under the studio system, in the 1930s, 1940s, the, the studios had very close contacts with politicians and the press. So in the Coen brothers film, um, Hail Caesar, um which is a kind of quite a light-hearted madcap comedy but it's it's very loosely based very loosely based on a hollywood fixer who's called was called eddie mannix who worked for mgm in the 1930s and 40s 
and the things that he had to do to keep the studio running in terms of you know if say an actor was caught drunk driving to maybe like pay off the police so it doesn't you know it doesn't come you know isn't isn't doesn't become publicly known or maybe pay off a press contact or and and similarly with with uh, politicians and uh so that was something i learned a bit about in in the book and um also obviously because it's hollywood you, you can you don't have to use money always you can just use your charm you can sort of say well would you like a tour of the studio do you want to meet some film stars and and you know and in return can you you know not pursue this uh you know uh doi you know case um uh so it was interesting to learn about the kind of the, the, the heft that hollywood had and how it was sort of uh unscrupulous in in playing those contacts with uh police and hospitals and and the press and 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 politicians during that age do you think that a lot of that happened to be with like just a lot of blackmail or just information that people had on other ones like i mean you see that sometimes like j edgar hoover like blackmail certain politicians and things of that sort but he just had a lot of information. So I don't really deem it the fault of the guy. I believe that anybody in that position would have just been a corrupt individual because there's things that you probably shouldn't know about people that you end up just having a whole backlog of information on. And then you got like connections with like press. I mean, press are always trying to get us. I remember back in the day, every tabloid magazine had like a cooter shot on it. I swear to God. And it was like, that uh, was- Had a what on it? A cooter shot. The, What's that? The, you don't know what a cooter is? No, it's a, it's a, like British. when they're getting out of the car and their legs are open and they got a oh, good okay, shot that, right yeah, there. Yeah, yeah, okay, that, yeah. That was like a. I mean, I remember all the time when I was a kid walking like by like the grocery store, like checkout line, and there's just a magazine. Like, guess who got that? And it was like, I mean, what else? Do, the actors like they have to. I, I don't. First of all, I don't know anybody who's like bending down waiting for a car to open mm -hmm. up. But that's like a real thing they had to worry about back then too. And then look at like Sean Connery. I mean, Sean Connery in that interview famously says, "Sometimes a woman needs a good schmack," and he says it just like that. And I'm like, how many people paid off a newspaper or a police thing just to make sure that your whatever you were doing in your free time didn't get publicly known because they were afraid it was going to damage your career? But that's why people have PR people. I think um, I forgot what his name is he made a really good statement about the media and he was like, the media are kind of like the police and your PR person is like your lawyer. Never talk to the police without your lawyer present. And it, it kind of started to make a little bit more sense. And it's like, we kind of see an industry and we see the product that gets made afterwards, but you really don't know the whole background stories behind films as well too. I think the mob connection to the press is pretty new for a lot of people. Uh, yeah, I don't know much about mob connection to the press. I mean, certainly, again, going back to that kind of early era of, of the studio system, you know, Jerry Giesler was the kind of lawyer that they always rang when they had, you know, something to, you know, possibly hush up or, you know, dress the situation before the police get there. Take care of. I got you. I got you. Okay. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> not that sinister, but kind of like that's that's presented in a way that, that, that is the least damaging for the for the for the celebrity. Um, before the eyes of the public or the police um and uh yeah i'm sure you know people have been paid off over the, over the, over the over the decades uh what was the question I, I forgot too so don't worry about it we could just move on to it i mean throughout your i guess writing about your book and kind of learning more about hollywood i mean did you have anything that kind of shocked you a little bit like i mean that you just necessarily didn't like maybe kind of changed your perception a little bit more about hollywood i think it was probably 
you know that 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 it can be a dark place it isn't it isn't wholly a dark place but it can be a dark place it isn't a surprise i think at, there are times i was surprised at the sort of the, the depth of the sort of corruption in in at, at times within the studios such as the stories i was telling and you know there's one story about patricia douglas who was a again going back to this character eddie mannix who worked for mgm in the 30s and 40s and there's a woman called Pat patricia douglas who was um, a dancer teetotal virgin 19 years old asked, answered a call from mgm in the maybe late 30s to go to what she thought was going to be an audition or something and actually she and a lot of other dancers are then bust out to a sort of remote ranch owned by mgm and it turns out and they're sort of dressed up as cute cowgirls and it turns out that they're going to be there as a sort of entertainment for 500 salesmen who have come across from the, all over the country for, for the last day of their sales conference and the girls think they're dancers the men i think are sort of have been promised a stag affair and kind of think oh these girls are party favors so the evening gets sort of you know eddie mannix and louis b mayor appear at the beginning of the evening sort of to wel welcome everybody and then they leave and the evening gets increasingly drunken and this uh patricia douglas is trying to sort of you know be pleasant while this guy's trying to grope her um, and she's trying to get away from his wandering hands later on he and he and another guy kind of hold her down and force alcohol down her uh then she claims he takes her outside and and he raped her after this she then pursues her case through courts but always comes up against the sort of the might of the studio which is has much greater influence with the district attorney Buron Fitz, who was a um, friend of Louis B. Mayer's, and uh, Mayer had contributed to his uh, reappointment campaign. And uh, she said, ultimately, you know, it ruined my life. She never got, uh, uh, she was never successful in the criminal or the civil courts. And Eddie Mannix, she said it ruined her life. Eddie Mannix, the general manager, sort of said, you know, we had her killed. Well, metaphorically, they did. Um, so those sorts of stories, um, surprised me um is that a hollywood weighing its options like a new kind of actress versus maybe someone that they kind of use a lot and they kind of see if like we can't let the scandal break because it's going to look bad for the guy that we've had a relationship for for a very long time so what was the beginning is, is it weighing its options yeah like the hollywood weighing its options of like are we going to let this new actress pursue a case that's going to take out maybe a connection that we have or something like yeah that? i mean her case wasn't against any celebrity but her case was against you know, the studio and it it would be you know damaging for the studio uh for it for it to pursue so they're thinking of ways how can we either kind of get the case pushed out of court in the first place um and and this this, this story silenced I suppose what's interesting in recent cases, this is quite different, but with the Johnny Depp story and Amber Heard, is that, you know, he was accused in... 2014. 2014. And in more recent years, the, the Sun in the UK newspaper called him a wife beater. And he then sues for libel. And the risk there, as, as proved, was that, you know, if he hadn't sued them, you know, the story would have kind of gone away. In suing them, he, he amplifies the story and says, you know, no, I'm not. You've libeled me. 
Well, he had to. He lost his contracts with Disney. He lost everything, basically. Nobody wanted to make a movie, especially in the States. Nobody wanted to make a movie over here with him because he was being called a wife beater. I think he sued Amber Heard and he won that trial. Yeah, um, he won recently, yeah. Yeah, and she's not I, blacklisted. I, yeah, I mean, I, I still wonder with him whether, whether by, I mean, he might say, I have to do it for the sake of my career. I wondered if he'd let it go and let the, the newspaper write that, whether, whether the story would have, would, have, would have gone away. And actually by 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 suing, he amplifies it. Now we all know the story. And then he lost the case as well. In the he lost the UK case, the English case. I about to say in the US, the case that he won, a lot of that was because damages to his career, but then Amber was proven to be. I mean, that I think both in that relationship, both of them were toxic for each other. Um, there's obviously faults on both sides, but there was like a lot of stuff in court that obviously was just like, all right, look, I wasn't believing her for a minute. Um, but I mean, depending on where people fall in that, but I mean, that's also how, you know, you have two giant actors that start a relationship. I mean, most of the time, I think, I don't know if it really always goes well. I can't really think of any like long lasting relationships besides the guy, Keith, what is it? Keith, the guy who plays Thanos in Marvel Avengers. He's been married to that chick for, I don't know how long now, but it's a great relationship from all that I see, I guess, from, you know, whatever the red carpet views on it. And it's like, I mean, there's always these scandals. What, what breaks the tension? Is it just two people that fell in love and got into it quick? Or was it pressure from press? I mean, you got to think how many times they film freaking Leonardo DiCaprio or my favorite, uh, Toby Maguire. That guy, um, when he's playing Spider-Man, is it Toby Maguire? Yeah, it is Toby, right? Okay. When you ever see him when he's out uh, behind the screen or when he's not on camera or something like that, when he's just walking, like and presses up in his face, he's like Kanye telling him the press to screw off. Like it's a completely different guy. He doesn't seem happy at all, but he's different on screen. You got to think, what are the overmounting pressures of having a camera shoved in your face 24 seven? No, I, I mean, there's always that, that thing of how you, how you learn to manage it. Um, I don't how know how learn. anybody does it well. Yeah. And you know, where does Harrison Ford live? He lives on a up in. Tell me a scandal about Harrison Ford. No, no, I don't know any okay. about Harrison Ford, but he lives in very. Uh, uh, there's a farm and winding somewhere, or wherever it is, a very you know remote place. I about to I about to say with Harrison Ford, I don't. I only only bad things I've heard about him was nobody liked the Indiana Jones movie, The Crystal Skull. I liked it. I thought it was great, but everyone's like, that was his worst Indiana Jones. And I'm like, I don't know. I haven't seen the newest one yet. And I'm like, that guy's getting a little bit too old, but that's also like, when does your career stop? Like, when do you get out of it? I think, um, what's his name? Oh God, honey. I shrunk the kids. Who is that guy? Rick Moranis. Rick Moranis. Yeah. That guy, his wife, I think either got sick or died. And then he took care of his kids and he gave up the whole Hollywood career. I mean, He's like the legendary example of what a lot of people would not do. I mean, despite your opinions on as a parent, having a kid and how much you love your kids, but it's just the aspect of like, he was on top of his game and just walked away from the table. Most people don't know when to stop. Yeah. I think it's, there's a line in, in Sunset Boulevard. So that's, you know, about a, a silent movie star whose career ended with the coming of sound, the sound coming out in 28. And it's now that by that point when the film movie's made is the early 1950s and she's still living on these past glories. And um, and the younger screenwriter says to her, you know, there's nothing tragic about being 50, not unless you're trying to be 25. And, and she was only 50. And um, and um, yeah, it's that case of, of and it's particularly cruel on, on women because it because Hollywood is so much about celebrating youthful beauty. So there's that line in the 
in the is it the first wives club but goldie horn line about you know there are only three roles roles for women in hollywood babe district attorney and driving miss daisy you know you play the young romantic lead until you're 40 then when you're 50 you reappear playing the you know da and then when you're 80 you play driving miss daisy um and so yeah very much a case of when do you you know sort of bow out on a career and actually, you know, Harrison Ford said when he, you know, he's now must be pushing 80, um, when he finally finished filming next year's Dinner and Jones film, you know, that, that's the last time I fall over for you. And but now he's also now doing this television series, isn't he? The Western for Paramount Plus. Um what would you, uh, about to say, what would you think like when you watch a film, do you notice a lot of the stuff like the gender stuff, the ethnicity stuff? I didn't start realizing that was a thing until like, I mean, I kind of knew there was like some weird stuff, but when I was started like looking for researchers to talk about films, I started noticing people that study like the gender history of films, the ethnicity uh, history of films, the propaganda and films. And I just kind of started going, there's a lot as a viewer or just a common, I guess the public, um, they just don't notice about films. And there's even stuff I miss as well too, like rewatching movies over again. And I'm like, okay, I could totally see that this is divided either one side or something like that. I mean, there's plenty of stuff that won't be produced today, but there's even like a movement, I think in that movie uh, with uh, The Rock where he was doing, what is that? About the skyscrapers where he was like some type of rescue guy. I never saw it, but people were upset that the person that was originally, it was based on like a story or something like that, but the person, they should have got a disabled person to play it. And then he, they were upset that it was The Rock. I was like, well, they're not caring about accuracy at this point. They're just using The Rock's name for to get people to go see the movie. It's like, well, the only reason I watched Fast and Furious, once I found out The Rock wasn't it, I'm like, I'm not watching this. I watched it for cars and then they went into outer space and I was like, I'm good, I'm done, I'm done. Um, so the question about about, I mean, like gender and diversity, this kind of question. Yeah, I mean, just, just roles or just. I, I think. Act, what, yeah, I think what you notice. I mean, you know, certainly in terms of 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 of, of uh, skin color, as like you know whether you're going to have an interracial relationship with the conservative Hollywood studios allow that. You know, would Will Smith play against? you know, a, a white actress, or actually, no, it would be a kind of Latino actress. It would be Will Smith and Ava Mendes in Hitch or something like that. Um, and there was supposed to be, wasn't there a scene in, I think there was a love scene in the in the Pelican Brief film with Denzel Washington and, and Julia Roberts. And that was, that was cut before the final film was released. And was it cut because it was just wasn't wrong for, right for the story? Some people say, was it cut because he was uncomfortable with the scene and how that would play with an african-american audience i don't know but that's there's a story i read somewhere it's kind of like um the implications when you're making a film as a director where i get kind of stressed or i focus from their aspects too as much as i worry about the actors and actresses i mean the overall risks and all the other stuff they have to go through with fame and so much but directors i mean when you make a film is someone going to take something away that you necessarily can't think of um for instance john cena john cena when he made the new fast and furious movie i think it was nine uh, he talked about Taiwan was going to be the first country to see the film and China just lost it because they don't recognize Taiwan as a country. So he apologized in like Mandarin. And I'm like, yo, if I just stay off social media. If you're an actor, holy crap, I could not even think of like 
that impact because I don't think I don't think like I would never think that saying the word Taiwan or saying the country in the same sentence would just have this national giant security issue when it comes to which makes a lot more sense why government's involved in films I mean that makes a hundred percent sense like the movie Pearl Harbor um we had to get review of that over in Japan as well too before we could even distribute that movie Pearl Harbor there was an actual extra scene where there was a person as, as someone was talking there was a person on the back of the ship that got lit up by a machine gun like just to integrated and japan's like cut that out take it out and like why and it's like you don't need all that that's extra you don't need that extraness you already have the gravity and a lot of real events that happened in there but you don't need to add that that's just like putting salt in the wound and then you're like okay so now it can turn into a giant world war three if you make a film the wrong way uh yeah i think i mean it's a very you know it's a very it can be a very powerful medium and it's uh you know it's a global medium so um you know, show some sensitivity there in, 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 in what you're making and how you're presenting it to the world. On the other hand, don't, you know, if you really believe in certain things, don't compromise them. You know, you can't please everybody. That's true. So I mean, on, on, at- on certain things, you know, so to speak, stick, stick to your guns on, on certain issues. Decide which ones you need to fight, which ones, which ones you, you could concede on. When it, like, I mean, have you looked at any modern TV series? Like, if you look at, like, Jeffrey Dahmer, like... That one, I, I've, I've not seen it. I've not, I've not seen much recent television. So I was say, cause that sparked up like a lot of controversy. And I'm just like, I don't, at this point, it's like, you just gotta, like you said, just make a film and you know, if it gets recepted one certain way. And like, obviously if it's not what you, I feel like if it's not what you intended, like if you're not outright, like cracking jokes on like a certain thing, but if you just do something and someone takes it a different way, then, I mean, you can just be like, well, I, that's not what I was thinking about it at all, but I mean, everyone's going to like examine it in their own little perspective thing and pull something out of it. That's like, it's like if you see a butterfly fly across like a road and it just misses a car and you're like, oh my God, it's a sign from God that life is beautiful. It's like, nobody, no, it's just a, the car didn't hit the butterfly. You would have a completely different reaction if it did. Yeah. Throughout your book, positives, anything like any things that you really appreciated when it came to something that you came across, that was like a story where like, that's very interesting. I mean, I, th- I think I found it all interesting, and I would have loved to have been able to spend longer writing the book, but the uh, the publishing schedule didn't allow for that. Um, uh, positives. Um, yeah, I didn't sort of see it in a positive or negative way. I just found it in- in- inter- interesting to work on it. And I mean, you know, positives are, are in a sense having this conversation as a positive. I was in a documentary for <laughs> on television about kind of Hollywood things. Learning more about Hollywood and filmmaking was 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 just a positive. Um, and, um, you know, I hope to at some point write more about cinema. Do you think that like there would be a good film out there that would talk about a lot of the stuff that goes on in Hollywood? Not like a documentary on like a certain scandal, but just talking about like the realness of Hollywood. I think um, if you ever see Studio, what is it? movie 43 it was like a bunch of little small little movies packed up into one it's got like all the top cast of actors like Hugh Jackman Halle Berry and all this but they're just a bunch of little small movie scenes but it's like making fun of Hollywood and it's also just making fun of the actors as well too like I mean Hugh Jackman had balls on his chin and it was supposed to be like a metaphor for the date that he was on could only see that and everyone else couldn't and it was like the stupidest 10 minute skit. It's like the Cohen, like the Ballad of Buster Scruggs. It's like a bunch of small little movies in one, but it was like, what am I watching? And then you're kind of like looking at like it's actors, not only making fun of their own self-image, 
but it's also making fun of like just Hollywood in general, which to me, I'm like, that's a first. We usually see everything gets casted in like a really, really good light. And if there's ever like movies on set or if there's ever something like a fourth wall break that talks about like the real industry of Hollywood, it's never depicted as end up finding out about it later. And I think that's why it shocks so many people. I think often when 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 Hollywood makes movies about Hollywood, it's often quite it's often quite fake. It's, it's surprisingly how poorly poorly it can it can show itself, and it's not it's not a question of it, if it shows itself in a positive or a negative light. It just shows it in a sort of phony kind of show busy light. Um, in in the in the last tycoon, so the the Scott Fitzgerald novel, which I don't think is a great novel, but it is about Hollywood. Yeah, Scott Fitzgerald went twice to Hollywood to work as a screenwriter, neither time particularly successfully. So, in, but but from that, he got raw material, which was observing um, how Hollywood worked. So, in a sense, Hollywood didn't get much out of him, but he got something out of Hollywood. And from that, he wrote *The Last Tycoon*, which is his his final and it's incomplete, incomplete. And it's not a great novel because of the love story that he tells between the studio executive and the actress or the woman isn't particularly interesting but what is interesting is the world that he depicts of silent era hollywood and there's a great scene in the book and it's also in the movie not the tv series recently it might be the tv series but in the movie made in the 70s of the monroe star who's the um the movie executive explaining to an english playwright how to write for the pictures how to write for movies um and uh, Donald Pleasance plays the English playwright, and it's a lovely, it's a lovely scene in the movie of kind of what can be magic about cinematic visual storytelling. And the playwright doesn't think he understands it, but he kind of does. It's well, it's well worth looking up. Have you ever looked into the concept of movie magic? Into the concept of it, I mean, only in a in a cinema what cinema has that you know theater or fiction in, in per, as a prose doesn't have is is editing in terms of the juxtaposition of these two these these two pieces of film so we cut from that shot to that shot and that's the, the what what's in a sense is the most mag magical thing about it with that you can also play with the juxtaposition of of sound and image and whether that's music sound or a door slamming or someone's voice and so these are the sort of things that you're, that you're playing with so with someone like you know obviously Hitchcock's doing can do, doing some very interesting things at times with with juxtaposing images and, and creating you know montages and things so I suppose that's the sort of the sort of magic but magic might just be that the that you know the, the exhilaration you feel when E.T.'s bicycle lifts off you know and flies up across the moon there's definitely a concept out there of like our stereotype of movie magic and i always try to figure out what that was because i mean you could have a scene where if you're looking at it like two car doors slamming at the exact same time two people getting out of the car but you don't hear two separate door slams you hear them synchronize and they do that like i've seen blooper reels where like nope you gotta do it again you didn't do it one two three and then they slam the doors and they click that's something so small which is like i mean it's in a split second in a scene you don't even think twice about it but then when you notice it you're kind of like okay that's interesting that they spent a lot of time spent like 10 minutes trying to get that door to slam properly but then you have cult films you have huge followings of these big lebowski one of my all-time favorite movies 
You have uh, Stanley Kubrick who makes like, I mean, epic films. And I'm like, is that a different style of movie magic? The fact that they do get this cult following, whether it's pushing the boundaries on whatever the industry was at the time, whether it's like leaving. I know people say like, oh, there's an there's an Apollo kind of conspiracy that's linked into one of his films. And I'm like, I don't really necessarily believe all that. And I think they're just weird coincidences at times as well, too. But there's just this interesting aspect to it. I think that's why Quentin Tarantino also has like a really good film following as well too like when he made once upon a time in hollywood and not only showed like a kind of a fictitious story but also with real events as well too but it gave like it was a different take than a lot of other movies out there probably would have done it i mean maybe that's tarantino's style but it's also what i would call movie magic not even on the basis of cameras but on the basis of how the story's told like there's just something in there whether it's a slight thing you couldn't think of that's going to be funny and it's going to really sink in with the audience or it's maybe own personal opinion that doesn't really seep through so much as like a giant political thing. It just kind of seems like, bam, here's this. And you're kind of like, that's an interesting take. I mean, I suppose the thing about cult films as opposed to other films is you don't know what's, what's going to become a cult film, what's not. I mean, would you say Lebowski is a cult film or? Hell yeah, that's a cult film. There's pe- It's inspired a religion, Dudism, where people that's dress true. up it's as the Dudism. religion is Dudism and white Russians. No, I, I, I like Lebowski a lot and I didn't see it when it came out, I don't think. And then I sort of caught up with it a bit later on. And actually, it's probably the film of theirs. I could recite you every single word on that one. M- might be the film of theirs. I, I uh, like most. And I suppose that, that's that interesting mix of a sort of Raymond Chandra story told with this stoned. <laughs> it got me interested in bowling, man. I'm yeah, telling you. Central that's, character. Yeah. That started my whole like just passion for i mean do you ever have a film that like really spoke to you something that you could rewatch a thousand times and you'd still enjoy it maybe something it could be from when you're a kid maybe something from when you know recent times um something that inspired you to do something new i mean the big lebowski not only my first drink was a white russian um bowling inspired that for me um i've also on like i think if there's like a quiz game you can play that does movie titles I'm like top in the world how big Lebowski I was for a brief amount of time because that was like something I had seen over and over. I mean, what what's his name? Oh God, the guy who does the car commercial. Oh no, who's the guy who plays in the ranch with Ashton Kutcher? The mustache dude who plays the stranger in the Big Lebowski. Yes, oh my, like I mean, just not even I wouldn't say maybe at the time they weren't an all star cast, but. They're definitely no names um, throughout Hollywood now. Sam Elliott, uh, God, John Goodman, uh, Jim. Oh, I'm gonna blank on his name. Steve Buscemi. Why am I doing that? Steve I'm Buscemi. A, well, well Jeff, Jeff, Jeff Bridges and, and John Goodman were big at the time, and Steve Buscemi, Philip Seymour Hoffman was kind of rising then. Um, and John, John Turturro had been around. He'd been John Turturro had been, you know, Barton Fink and other things. So yeah. But do you have a movie that gave you, had you inspired to do something or maybe change your life in the sense of you picked up something or you added something to your life? I'm not sure movies ever changed my life. Um, there are moments you remember from movies that sort of touched you. Um, not, has a movie ever inspired me to do anything? I mean, it's like... Um, you could say Old Yeller. I don't, I mean, at the ending Old Yeller, I think everybody was inspired to go adopt a dog and not shoot it. <laughs> In what? What's that? Uh, old Yeller? I said, old I think Yeller? at the ending of that one, you don't know what Old Yeller is? Hmm. Bro, what are we talking about? You've never seen that old Western movie where they're on the prairie and the dog saves the kid's life and the dog gets rabies and he shoots it. And it's like, I saw it in fourth grade 
And I was like, why, oh. what are you doing? I wanted to watch Tuck Everlasting. And it's I, like, I've not, even, I've not even heard of Old Yellow. Wow. Maybe that's one that, maybe that's one that hasn't traveled very well across the, across the Atlantic. <laughs> is, is a, I guess it, that makes a lot of sense. It would be, you ever heard of Tuck Everlasting? No. Okay. All right. Sorry. You named a couple of movies I didn't know either. So I guess it's fair that I'm probably doing the same thing. But you never had a movie that wanted you inspired to do something. You don't have a cult favorite? Mm, probably not. Do you have a favorite director? No, that would be Billy Wilder. Well, what's his best movie that you like? The Apartment. What's The Apartment? You should, you should know The Apartment. I should? The, the Apartment is a Christmas movie. So here you go. The oh, Apartment God. is... The story, Jack Lemon and Shirley MacLaine. Jack Lemon works in a big insurance firm and he's got himself in a, a tricky situation because some of the senior men in the firm have started using Jack Lemon's apartment for their trysts. Um, and this has been good for Jack Lemon in the sense that he keeps getting being promoted because he's, you know, in favor with the senior executives so they can have their extramarital affairs in his apartment. But he doesn't like the situation. And then he finds himself falling in love with Shirley MacLaine, who's one of the elevator girls. But he doesn't know that she is in a relationship with one of these senior executives using Jack Lemmon's apartment. I gotta watch that movie. You gotta watch it. It's a Christmas movie. And it's a very, uh, it's a How's bittersweet. It, I know it's like Christmas movie, but most Christmas movies are like, I mean, I'm not going to complain about Christmas movies because you see the ones that they're making now. It's all about murder, which I like. That's the times now. The times, is all, they just made a, a Grinch horror movie. And then a Winnie the Pooh horror movie where I was like, you got the right from Disney to do that. That's insane. Does, does Disney own Winnie the Pooh? Yeah, that's all their Pixar studios or whatever it is. Pixar. Um, I'm not sure Denise Young, but anyway, um, it's called so Blood Grinch, and Honey. Watch it. The, really the, the Grinch horror movie is, um, okay. I can see that. I mean, I think I saw the poster for that. I mean, I said the apartment is a Christmas movie. It's not a Christmas movie like Elf. It's a Christmas a movie, a movie that's set, a, set around Christmas and New Year. So in a kind of background way, it's a Christmas movie. So that's like what Die I, Hard. Yeah, like Die Hard happens to be set at Christmas, but you kind of don't think of it. I mean, these days, we do think of Die Hard as a Christmas movie because we keep talking about it. But but at the time, we didn't really think, oh, it's a big Christmas movie. And it didn't come out at Christmas. It came out, I think, in the autumn, Die Hard. So, yeah. Do you, um? I mean, do you, like when it comes to like cocaine, you ever see the trailer for Cocaine Bear? I think I've even heard of Cocaine Bear. It's brand new, but it's based on a, a real event that happened a long time ago. That this is where movies are going. They're just becoming really, really insane, but they're going off some true stories. So Cocaine Bear is based on a real event. I think it happened almost like 40 years ago. Um, what happened was a plane was drug smuggling and at the back of the plane, something happened and they threw out a bunch of cocaine and it landed in a national park and a bear ate it and it started ravaging through this town. That is a real event. It's a real story. You can look that up. They made a cocaine bear movie about it and they did kind of Hollywood it up. I can tell through some of the things like bear can't climb trees and the guys that like covered in cocaine, and the bear smells it and then runs right up the tree. That stuff's obviously added in. Um, but I'm like, well, movies are just getting insane now. Like, are we ever going to see a movie that's going to come out? that's going to have a large kind of sequel audience or like Harry Potter. I mean, Maybe that was just the times of when Harry Potter came out where they made so many movies back then, and it kind of followed the book line. I know that, but there was plenty of movies back then that had Fast and Furious is another good example. Um, but there's plenty of movies that came out like when I was a kid that were just 
maybe that was the times where people wanted to see a second and see a third and see a fourth. But then, I mean, today it just seems like there's so many things that they can go through now. I mean, they've had many different variations of Superman. Um, and I think Henry Cavill just gave up the cape as well, too, or was kicked out of the thing. So it's like, I don't see the original person going all the way through to the end and get to watch these people grow. Yeah, I mean, I think the studios are now even more than before trying to to um, exploit as much as possible the you know the kind of intellectual properties that they've got. So, so you know, Marvel's done you know, I'm not a huge fan of the films, but I've not seen many of them. But done great things in the past, sort of you know, since since sort of Iron Man in creating the whole Marvel expanded universe and with the sort of interconnected storylines and. Warner Brothers with the with the with the DC characters, yeah, they keep trying to find ways to 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 either revive Superman, also with Batman. Um, you know, I think actually that that kind of approach is, you know, the, the studios are making fewer films, far fewer sort of mid-budget films, more tentpole films such as the kind of the big superhero spectacles um um i think it shows you that the acting position isn't as secure as it used to be um and this is just from my own personal observation i mean they kicked out henry cavell um as superman but look at how many supermans took the place i mean there was a real point where obviously christopher reeves wasn't going to do superman anymore after he had his injury so they had to get another one. That's understandable. But then now at this point, it's like, they don't care how much money you're requesting for. At this point, it's like, should the actor just be grateful that they really got the role in the first place? Like I deserve actors should get paid. But back in the day, people used to cover up, uh, cover up a scandal on someone because that was a known name and they like this guy in their films and they can keep making more and more and more with them. Now it's like, they'll be more than happy to drop you. So it's kind of like forcing actors to keep their nose kind of clean in a sense as well too, but also the sensitive aspect of the position. Like, Oh, you guys want me back to play another role? Cause at this point they can just remake a whole other Superman and start it off from the beginning or just tell a different side of the story. There's been so many different variations of Superman. You could do that with really Batman. You can do that with any of these monolithic figures. And then, yeah. Yeah, I think that they can exploit the, the, these characters in so many different, so many different ways. Um, and, you know, I think even before Christopher Reeves' accident, the kind of, at that point, the Superman franchise has sort of run out of steam in the, in the, in the, the accident was in the early mid-90s and the, the last film he'd done was later 80s anyway, so, and hadn't been very successful. So um, I don't think it was so much about, about him. It's not also... Also, is it even a very particularly good role for an actor, Superman? You don't think super? What do you mean? An interesting role for an actor to play? I mean, I suppose each film can make it more interesting than other, but there are some roles that I think are... I mean, Warren Beatty was considered for the first Superman film, and I think he turned it down. That's the first Christopher Reeve film, um, you know, because he felt silly wearing the, <laughs> the suit. Maybe times move on and actors don't feel silly, silly, feel silly wearing the costume. But I think at that point he did. He thought, I can't, I can't really see myself doing this. Superhero movies are not interesting from the plot point perspective. Like Superman, if you looked at him from like as a creative movie to make, no, it's a guy that has like basically every single superpower. In a sense, he's a god. 
I mean, there's not really anything really creative about that. But what is really interesting to me is the reaction that it has to the public or the youth. Like, I think it's the, the nephew of Henry Calvell was in school saying that his uncle was Superman and everyone was calling him a liar. And like the teacher was even like, all right, stop making up fairy tales. And he brought his uncle Henry into, you know, the school. And it was like, oh shit. Like, yeah, I mean, my nephew thinks I'm Tom Holland and he thinks I'm Spider-Man. It's kind of a little joke we have in our family because I kind of look like him. But it's like, you don't, I mean, I think they even made a movie about that with Ben Affleck where he was playing Superman at an amusement park and some kid brought a gun to shoot superman and test it like if you can bullets can bounce off you and it's based on a true story a kid actually brought a gun into an amusement park to shoot the guy who's playing superman and the just talk the kid down and saying if you shoot me with those bullets some of them could bounce off and that i mean that to me makes the role interesting where i start wondering like i think they have a little bit more impact in our society than i wouldn't say it's creative in the aspect of like okay superman's just punching things i like to watch it but i don't think that's not obviously a good story yeah, that's kind of interesting. That that kind of brings us back to to the impact of Hollywood rather than the film itself. Is it the impact that it has on the general public that people really believe that that that, um, that Ben Affleck was had superpowers, not not. I was just wearing a costume. It was all special effects, um, and how that um, and and how we believe in in we like to believe that it's real. You know, drama is all about the, the suspension of disbelief, and we like to believe that they really are. You know, that, that these actors really are that that witty, that you know, everyone's that that pretty, that they really can throw a punch or take a punch. I think Hollywood or just movies in general do something to us where it's supposed to be an escape, and I think that's what we really enjoy about it. But also, I mean, I think that's why a lot of people don't want to meet their favorite actor or favorite you know, whoever comedian, whoever, because they're afraid that it's not going to live up maybe to the expectation a little bit, which I start wondering, would we be okay as people with a movie that showed an actor as themselves? Like just have them, like, I think even in the new um, Disney film about the new Guardians of the Galaxy, it's like a Christmas edition. They had Kevin Bacon in it and Kevin Bacon was just playing Kevin Bacon. And everyone's like, kind of like, you didn't save the world by using dance. And he's like, no, that was a movie I played where I danced. And it was like kind of like they were just kind of throwing shade at him, saying like, oh, so you're not this hero. You're a phony. You're an actor, the worst of people. And he was like, yeah, we are bad sometimes. And it was just like that where it was like, I bet, dude, I don't care if that's him in real life or whatever. But that someone that can take a joke like that and kind of make fun of the position that they're in. That's interesting to me. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. No, that's, that sounds that sounds fun. The. Uh, yeah, the, the, the uh, making a joke out of himself, taking a joke. Yeah. I mean, that just didn't happen. I don't know. Like, you know, that idea, that concept is, I wouldn't say relatively new, but I haven't seen a whole lot of that. I mean, even in, back in older Hollywood, it was all about trying to play something that was more out there um, than the original thing was. I mean, films like that had, can you think of an interesting film from back in the 20s, 30s, 40s, or 50s that we've even thought about doing again today? Besides Godzilla, don't say Godzilla because that is has been redone too many times. But like King, I mean, King Kong is probably another good example. I don't well, know King that Kong was one. There you go. You got there first. King Kong was, re, was being remade. They, they threatened to remake things such as Casablanca, and that's from like 44 or something like that, isn't it? Um, See somebody take yeah, a Yeah, I mean, West Side, West Side Story was a film from when? When West Side Story made in the early 60s? I don't think I've seen that movie. West Side Story? Mm-mm. You've heard of West Side Story? I've heard the reference of West Side Story, but I don't know exactly what it is. Okay, well, what's that? Yeah, so Spielberg made West Side Story last year, yeah? He made a musical of it. 
well, he made the film of the musical, but that was, you know, but the film had originally been made in the early 60s. Um, I didn't think much of Spielberg's film because I thought that it didn't do enough that was different from the earlier film. Um, <laughs> I mean, I liked Spielberg as a filmmaker a lot, but I thought, didn't think that I thought, you don't need to, I mean, it's, it's you know, it had been his, fav his favourite, you know, record as a kid listening to the, to listen to the, to the Broadway show soundtrack and uh, his remake, his, his version in the film version was, as far as I could tell, just too similar. I mean, there were some things, there were some changes, but generally I didn't think it was that interesting. I think Steven Spielberg, and this is kind of a controversial take, a lot of people kind of feel this way, but people believe that he was better when he was drinking and he was kind of burning himself out a little bit as well, too. It's kind of like Hunter S. Thompson. Um, if you ever heard what Hunter S. Thompson does in a day, it's just, it does not sound like you'll ever function ever, but he was a terrific writer. People think it was because that he was like drugging and he was doing all these crazy living styles. And that's kind of like with Steven Spielberg. A lot of his newer stuff, I do not like. I think he was way better back in the day but i've heard i was i was unaware that he ever was drinking no there was like a big pretty sure it's steven spielberg um he's making new books now but they're like political if i'm not mistaken or if i, if I follow his twitter i think and it's like kind of political but i've heard that from a lot of people that like his older films were a lot better when he was kind of a little bit more crazy and kind of living like a different lifestyle than i think when his wife or whoever got him clean and that's like a terrible like i said controversial take like you don't want someone to be beating the shit out of their bodies but at the same time it's like hunter s thompson like i said great example that the stuff that dude was able to create ideas he was able to write down and the lifestyle he was living it's like i don't know if you can't do that if you're not in pain or if you're not doing a bunch of different things yeah i mean i think you know horses for courses i've not read any hunter s thompson and he's in a very different field from 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 spielberg but I think that you know you, you you know you can create great art in very different different ways, and you don't you don't need to be in, intoxicated to do it, or in to have a terrible have had a terrible life. For some, that works that way; for others, not. So, you know, I think it, there's a great sort of spectrum there. Yeah, I mean, obviously, but just with the Steven Spielberg scenario, just that's what people believe. I mean. I, I, like I said, I haven't seen a whole bunch of Steven Spielberg films to be able to give you my own take on that. I think I've seen some of his older stuff, which I liked. Um, a lot of his newer stuff, I've taken a glimpse at it. I was just something that didn't really attract it to me. But I mean, there's it's it's hard to create, obviously, new stuff. I mean, even like Cowboy Bebop, I think, was a thing that they just made a, something for Netflix about as well, too. I've never heard of that before, but there's a giant following that's behind that. And you hear the history behind that. And the guy's like, I mean, it's like watching a Rick and Morty cartoon or some type of animated show. Like you watch Family Guy, there's no way you're not doing something that causes you to think this way, whether it's just Seth MacFarlane's crazy, but he even talks about a lot of his like, you know, directing cast or the people that are writing a lot of the storyboard stuff. I mean, they're all not like sober people. And it's just like, yeah, I mean, it's the slapstick comedy. It's like watching Naked Gun. It's like, I don't know what they're doing when they're writing Naked Gun, but for <laughs> I'm hooked. And it's always like becomes one of those stoner comedy type deals. I think with Naked Gun, it's, you know, the the, the fruit of having seen, you know, a great deal of, of film and TV over the decades <laughs> and absorbed it and uh, sort of, and uh, enjoyed the the fun of um, making a parody of it, as with the airplane films. I'm going to have to go in a minute. So should we, should we uh, wind up with a final question or something yeah if you want to just uh, let everybody know where they can find your links man i appreciate the time you gave me to talk uh well thank you very much so i have a website kieranconley.com 
The book is called Dark History of Hollywood. Uh, I think it was available, should be available in Barnes Noble in the US. Uh, it's published by Amma Books in the UK. And there will be a somewhat revised edition out in February. And, you know, it's been a pleasure talking to you, Robbie. And uh, I very much enjoy talking about, you know, Hollywood and movies. Well, I'm going to link all your links in the description. It's been a pleasure chatting with you. And thanks for listening to this episode of Out of the Mic Podcast.